This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, officially, the election was, what, five days ago, but already things are shifting behind the scenes of the major parties, including the Conservative Party. They lost another election. So what is the chatter behind the scenes about leader Aaron O'Toole? Joining us now is Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, morning, Simi. Now, this didn't take long. Uh, no, and you know we kind of knew as soon as we saw it happening um, on Monday night, and even before that, there there was a lot of folks who were not happy with Aaron O'Toole shifting to the center, and we thought, ooh, if this doesn't work, um, he could be in for a political fight, and that's exactly where we find ourselves. So it is not a complete surprise, uh, but the party is kind of going through this reckoning of, you know, did they lose because people weren't willing to hand the keys from Justin Trudeau to Aaron O'Toole? Did they lose because they tried to become as one caucus source put it to me last night, liberal light, and people will choose a, a real liberal over liberal light. Uh, those are a lot of the social conservative and sheer right caucuses who support Andrew aren't happy here. And on the other hand, then I hear from other conservatives who say, okay, um, but if we don't move to the center, we saw what happened in 2019. And if we ever want to take the GTA and the lower mainland, it may not have worked this time around. uh, But Aaron O'Toole was a new leader. We were projected to do very badly coming out of a pandemic. Moving back to the right when that's not where Canadians are voting is, is not the solution. If you look at the vote, most of the vote went to progressive parties. So there's really this sort of existential fight, not just about Aaron O'Toole's leadership, but about what the party should be. Right. That that kind of sums up also what Aaron O'Toole's speech was saying on election night, doesn't it? Where it seemed very, very much like it was directed towards conservative party supporters as opposed to the general public. That's exactly who it was directed towards. And he was making it clear that he was not going to uh, back down after losing an election, that he he plans to stay on and fight, uh, that he would like another chance to to prove himself when we're not in a pandemic situation and, and Canadians don't know him, and that he doesn't think that the decisions they made policy-wise were the wrong ones, that he doesn't think that's why the party lost. And we haven't heard much more from Mr. O'Toole to get a sense of, of why, but he did say that... Um, um, in, a, in a press conference, which, you know, as I say, we haven't heard much from, we haven't heard from the Prime Minister either. Uh, Aaron O'Toole at least did give a press conference. Um, he said, nobody's more disappointed than me, um, that they were deeply disappointed by this. But it, it really becomes the question of where does this go next? Uh, was this simply mistakes made on the campaign? Did they never have a chance in the first place? And I would say, you know, as someone who covers politics early on in the election, we did not expect them to do well at all. Um, they didn't necessarily do well, but but it wasn't the disaster that a lot of people had predicted. So he outperformed expectations, but he did not meet the expectations of those in the party and in his caucus who wanted to 
win, especially those who, who really disagreed with the policy positions. And so they saw this as a referendum on that. And that includes things like guns, um, spending. I mean, th- this was the biggest spending conservative platform in history. It was massive. It did in parts look like a, a liberal platform, which some of those who wrote it thought was a strength. Others in the party are now saying it's not a strength. We need to be conservative conservatives. They didn't like his position on being pro-choice personally or his position on conscience rights uh, when it comes to uh, for medical professionals providing abortion. They felt that he flip-flopped on guns. They felt that he flip-flopped on the carbon tax. And in fairness, he absolutely did flip-flop on both of those issues. Um, and they flip-flopped because they thought that it would gain them votes. And, and it's not clear whether or not that actually happened. So now all of these things are really at the heart of the questions the Conservatives Party party is asking about the O'Toole team's approach to the election and the platform. Oh boy, it's going to be interesting times ahead. You'll talk more about this on the West Block this weekend? We will be. We have uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner on the show. She's come out publicly in support uh, of Erin O'Toole, although I know that she was a heavy-duty, no-carbon tax campaigner, so that one had to be a little tough for her to swallow. Um, We're going to talk to her about what she thinks should happen in the Conservative Party and sort of this war that is breaking out inside the caucus and the quiet phone calls that some of us journalists are getting late at night from unhappy caucus sources. Oh yeah, I got one last night calling Erin O'Toole a liar, saying that he he was disingenuous. Um, the gloves oh are absolutely off inside Conservative Caucus. Oh, that's fascinating. Mercedes, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about our COVID-19 situation. Yesterday, an uncomfortably high number of cases across the province, right? More than 800. Some concerns about Fraser Health because there was more than 300 cases in Fraser Health alone. But then over in Victoria, some alarming news as well. There are some leaked public health documents that indicate 225 people living in shelters or on the streets, so unhoused, contracted COVID-19 in just the first three weeks of September. How is that happening? What kind of measures are in place to help out with that? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Guy Felicella, who's a harm reduction advocate, overcame drug addiction himself. Guy, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Were you surprised when you heard that number? Um, Yeah, a little bit, I guess. You know, you expect that, uh, you know, public health will announce and um, the information so that, um, you know, you can... um, go out there and and try to alleviate um those numbers that people are are falling into um yeah so i was a little surprised have have we been doing enough do you think to combat covid19 in our unhoused population well apparently not um you know it's unfortunate i think if you looked at uh, island health or the healthcare system across the country and how it treats people who use drugs or people who are homeless, um, that needs to change. And I think um, the health authority needs to do uh, a much better job at addressing the issues and the stigma that was caused by um, them towards people who are struggling. Um, If you look at what we did in the downtown east side of Vancouver, um, we were there in from January till basically June, um, setting up on corners and trying to get the vaccine out to the population. But also with that, 
Um, you know, the skepticism from substance users or people who are homeless, they're afraid of the health authorities. So you need somebody um, with lived experience or somebody that knows the community really well to be working um, to try to get the vaccine roll out to people who need it the most. And it was successful in, in Vancouver. Um, I don't see why that wouldn't be successful in Victoria. So do you think it's not happening in, in other communities? And you said we were in the downtown east side from January to June. How Are we still there? Or are our efforts still being made? Oh, yes. Like, uh, we have, like, at BCH, there's a mobile testing van that's driving around. You know, people can get tested, people can get vaccinated. Um, you really have to bring the vaccine vaccine to people. You can't expect people who are homeless to leave their belongings to come into a clinic and get vaccinated. That's just not going to happen. Um, that's all their belongings, their stuff. Um, so you have to, you know, bring it to them. And then, you know, we did, you know, incentive, coffee cards, whatever we could to, to help people, um, you know, get access to it. And, and we do have uh, something that will alleviate the, the numbers of people getting COVID. It's the vaccine. It's just whether people are going to get it. And you have to understand that uh, people who struggle with homelessness or substances are very skeptical um, most of the questions that I got from people on the street were, did you get the vaccine? And I said, yeah. And as soon as I said, yes, there was, there was a level of, of comfort, not always at first, but, um, in that five month time frame, even people that said no in the beginning, they came back to get the vaccine. Oh, that is so interesting then guys. So, it, so it's not just about, oh, we're going to provide it and here, come and get it. You're saying even more work than that has to be done. Yeah, you really have to be there. It's about building trust. And a lot of people just don't trust the healthcare system. So that takes time. And that took, you know, for some people a few months. And, and obviously, uh, as well as seeing their friends get access to the vaccine as well, and that they didn't become uh, vitally sick. That's a big fear for a lot of people. And um, when they saw their friends get the vaccine and how there was no uh, issues with them, then they, they, they came to get it too. And it, it was great. So do you think that didn't happen in the Victoria situation? Yeah, that I'm not sure of, of what they did or, but honestly, listen, like if, if there's an outbreak or clusters like that, when we had clusters in the downtown east side, we sent targeted teams out towards those clusters immediately to get the vaccine out in that area. And that's how we did it for months. And it was very successful. Uh, I believe it saved a lot of lives and people who are struggling that don't have housing, if they do contract COVID without being vaccinated, I mean, they're at severe risk. Um, and that's just, we need to change that. I find this so interesting though, because what you're saying is like, obviously there's sometimes a group of people that you really need to convince and on the downtown east side, that effort was put in, but you know what guy, you could almost say that for people in the general population too, right? There's a small group of people that maybe we need to make that same effort. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I think, you know, over time, you're going to see, look, look, we have an answer. It's the vaccine. It's just whether people are going to um, take it or not. And so you have to put the work into to try to show people that you're there, that you care and that you're, you know, you're trying to help. And and uh, and anybody that did get it. No, I I mean, they were they were very uh, it came with a, a lot of relief for a lot of people as well. So um, obviously you hear the the numbers are rising. The Delta variant is, is yeah. very contagious. So we have to do a lot more work. This is not going away. How do you do it then, Guy? What is that conversation like to have with people who need to be convinced? Well, you know, I just think you have to talk about what uh, you've experienced through it, um, that it is safe. It's The science is behind it now. There's evidence. 
um, you know, and, and have some compassion towards people um, as well. And, you know, uh, in a way that, uh, you know, obviously protects not only them, but their family members, their their kids, my kids, my kids can't get vaccinated. So I'm very protective of that as well to make sure that, um, you know, I don't want, I, I don't want my kids to get it or anybody else to get it. So um, we've got to do our best to, to try to, you know, talk to people, education, awareness, uh, whether that's putting on uh, education seminars or, or just talking more about that it is safe and effective. And yeah, hopefully people will will eventually come around and get it. Right. But when we talk about people who are homeless, it's already challenging enough to connect them to the healthcare system, isn't it? Yes, very challenging. And that's the thing. That's where they need to hire people with lived experience as well. Um, like, you know, myself and, and others who worked alongside uh, doing the vaccine rollout were people who knew the community very well and um, are respected in the community by people. You, you can't just bring a health official to go down there and tell people to get the vaccine. That's not going to work. You have to have, you know, uh, like I said, people with, like peers that uh, know the community, know the people and the people know them. And, um, you know, that's that's what we did. It was successful. And I think VHA maybe needs to look at hiring um, people with more people with lived experience to, to help do the vaccine roll up for people that are uh, homeless or in the shelters. Right. So you're saying what worked in the downtown east side can work elsewhere. They just have to use that method. I, yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly that uh, it was very successful. People were coming to like there was lineups to get the vaccine. Um, they were excited to get it. They were happy to get it once they felt comfortable. And that takes you not just being in there once a week. That took us being there five five days a week, uh, sometimes uh, on weekends as well. I mean, we were just constantly there. And that is the population that is at extreme risk because of all the other underlying health conditions. Um, so you have to protect them. Right. It's a fascinating topic. Guy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sydney. Guy Felicella is a harm reduction advocate talking about reaching out to the community on the downtown east side to make sure they got vaccinated, which was done. It was a very intensive process and it is ongoing. Perhaps didn't happen elsewhere. Hearing the news that there are 225 people living in shelters or on the street in the Victoria area that contracted COVID-19 in the first three weeks of September. So perhaps there are some lessons to be learned there, but we'll be hearing more about that in the news. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Some Canadian airlines like WestJet going through a process that many American airlines are going through right now. Today is the day that WestJet is going to evaluate and then, I guess, accommodate the employees who are unable, for whatever reason, to be vaccinated against COVID-19, either through medical or other exemptions. And if they fail to attest to their vaccination status by today or achieve full vaccination status by October 30th, 
they will face some consequences, unpaid leave or perhaps termination of employment. So how are other airlines handling this October 30th deadline? Joining us now is Claire Newell, our Global BC travel expert and president of Travel Best Bets. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it's really been interesting to watch because it's been, you know, over a month since the federal government announced vaccine mandate for employees in all these federally regulated transportation sectors like air, rail and marine transportation. So every airline in Canada has been outlining their policies to comply accordingly. So, yeah, the big day for uh, WestJet employees is today, and that's just to declare their status. But they'll have until October 30th to be fully vaccinated. But like you say, you know, those who don't comply face unpaid leave or termination. And testing's not going to be an alternative, Simi. Oh, they're not offering that? Because I know some no. industries are saying, okay, fine, we'll test you then. Yeah, no, they're not going to be offering that. They said that, of course, that they're going to be working with employees for medical or other reasons that people can't be vaccinated. But for sure, all prospective hires, they're going to have to be fully immunized. And Air Canada's policy... Um, that was released back in August. It's almost identical. They'll be requiring all of their uh, employees to be vaccinated uh, or face the same consequences. This is so interesting. So this is also what's going on in the United States, right? But it yeah. seems like in the U.S., the government didn't mandate it. These big companies are doing it themselves. Yeah, but, you know, uh, United Airlines, they're the only one so far that's going to um, be requiring their employees to be fully vaccinated. And they, again, they're going to be um, some exemptions for those who can provide proof of religious or medical reasons why they can't be immunized. Um, but they actually, they're in, they incentivize their staff so that anyone who actually... Uh, could show proof that they were vaccinated by September 20th, they got a full day's pay. And other airlines are doing different things, like some are um, actually charging a surcharge if you're not vaccinated, and like Delta's doing that, where employees who are unvaccinated and on company health insurance, they actually have to pay 200 bucks as a surcharge. And they're going to, Delta is also stopping pay protection for unvaccinated staff if they miss really? work due, yeah, due to a COVID infection. So are Alaska and American Airlines. One uh, interesting thing about Alaska, they were, they were actually offering money, like a cash incentive, $200 to employees to get vaccinated. So whether they're, you're, you're made to pay a surcharge if you're not, or you get an incentive to get vaccinated, every airline's doing something different. But the whole bottom line here is airlines want their staff vaccinated. And it's because, you know, airlines took it on the chin, cruise lines took it on the chin, all of these big travel companies took it on the chin for spreading it. Right. Right. So they really, it's the really the only way to gain confidence to allow people to want to travel again. Right. Close quarters, right. Sitting next to people like that. I mean, what is the state of the travel industry these days? And Claire, are people booking things? Are they thinking about vacations? There's definitely uh, an uptick, especially in people looking. And yes, people are booking. Most of the people are booking. We've said this for a while later into this year and into 2022. There's still lots of confusion. People, um, you know, there, things are changing as we see with the U.S. Earlier this week, we saw people that uh, people asking lots of questions because the U.S. announced that fully vaccinated travelers from other parts of the world going to going to be able to fly to the U.S., which is going to replace a policy that a, a, a patchwork of policies because there were different rules and restrictions and it really limited travel over the course of the pandemic from Europe, Asia uh, and elsewhere. But what it means for Canadians is that starting early November, no specific date, Simi, 
you'll need to be fully vaccinated to fly there. And that's not been the case. You've been able to fly to the U.S. since the start of the pandemic without showing proof of vaccination, just an antigen test to majority of mainland U.S. uh, and a PCR test to places like Hawaii. But this is going to be changing uh, shortly. And we just don't know. There's no definitive word on whether mixed doses are going to be accepted. So there's lots of people like me, <laughs> AstraZeneca, <laughs> Moderna, who are kind of waiting for uh, those those details. Right. But it was interesting. I, I think they're going to follow suit what the UK did because the UK recently announced it's going to be accepting um, vaccination combos. Right. And also the fact is, I know there was concern about AstraZeneca not being approved in the U.S. and would they accept it? But if they're going to take travelers from Europe and the U.K., which they are doing, they're going to have to take it. Yeah, they're going to have to. And and I know that there's confusion about AstraZeneca, but if you have a full course of one of the WHO approved vaccine, it includes AstraZeneca. It doesn't talk about the mixed um, yet. Hopefully it will. But if you have a, both doses of AstraZeneca, that's WHO approved, like World Health Organization right. approved. Um, So what this tells us then, Claire, is that if people were thinking that, oh, they'll still be able to travel without being fully vaccinated, that is clearly very rapidly not becoming the case. No, exactly. Vaccination is the golden ticket. We've been saying that since, again, pretty much the start of the pandemic for travel. I I wouldn't even dream. I, I can't imagine someone wanting to travel anywhere because any flight back to Canada, we still have that golden rule of you need to have a PCR test taken within three days and you have to have a proof of vaccination to be able to avoid that 14-day quarantine. Who wants to do that? Nobody. No. So right now, if a Canadian flies to the U.S., you don't need to prove that you're vaccinated. You just need to have taken um, a, a test before you go. Right. And it depending on depends on which state you're going to. But for vast majority of uh, mainland U.S., it is simply an antigen test, the rapid one that you can get done even at the airport before you leave. Right, but that's not the one that you need to come home. No, it's the PCR. It's the PCR test. I actually did it for the first time myself. Remember, I was vis- going down right. to visit my daughter. And it, I was so worried, the whole kind of thing, the, you know, it's just the the unknown. I'm a Virgo. I like things super organized. Um, that's hilarious it, that you just said that, actually. But yes. <laughs> You know, it wasn't as hard as I, I thought. I, I I did plan. You know, you just have to ha- have the, the test planning. It's expensive, though. It was like 100 bucks to get the antigen test. And on the way back, it was 129 to get the PCR US dollars for that one. Right. And you just have to, you know, make sure you know where you're getting it done and stuff. It's just more hassle. Yeah, more hassle. So is there any indication that Canada might change their rules on that, though, because they're very specific about what kind of test, which is more expensive and is more of a hassle. Yeah. And, and we're all fully vaccinated if we're coming back already. That's why right. Why that additional expense? You know, I, I'm not really sure. Uh, there's so many countries where you show, you actually have to show that you're vaccinated as well as a PCR test. I would hope that in time, um, with uptick of vaccines ro- rolling out, that the antigen, like the rapid test, will become the norm. It's so much more affordable. What what I have seen, though, Simi, is the cost of whether it be an antigen test or a PCR test go down. Cabo was one we talked about really early. Remember, it was four hundred and fifty U.S. dollars. Yes. For an, yeah. So now, one hundred and fifteen Canadian dollars. Still. So it's really lowered. 
Yeah, still, but if you're a family of four or like a family going down there, that is a huge added expense. Yeah, and it's why so many people are saying, well, if travel, like travel is for kind of the rich now, like it's so expensive with all of these testings in in both directions in many cases. And yeah, I I, I have to agree. It's really like the higher end people and um, some people who have to go for work and their company's paying for it. But the average family, like it's crazy. You know, if I, we have trips to, to Vegas for $229 plus tax. And the testing in some cases is more than that. That is crazy. So, okay. Yeah. So I feel, I feel like a lot could change in the next month though, right? With the way things I are do. developing. I hope so. You know, uh, you know, prices of those testing coming down, we're seeing um, mixed doses now available on um, like mixed mRNA for cruising out of US ports. That That just changed this week as well. Things are changing constantly and it's getting slightly easier, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. Thank you so much for that, Claire. <laughs> Thanks so much, Simi. Bye. Claire Newell, our uh, travel expert, of course, president of Travel Best Bets, talking about how with airlines in particular in Canada, they are, today is the day for WestJet employees anyway, they have to attest to their vaccination status or let them know what the plan is. They have to be fully vaccinated by October the 30th or they face unpaid leave or termination of employment. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, listen up out there, parents. Facebook, which owns Instagram, is now back in the news because of this recent damning investigative look at how they operate things and how harmful their platform is to teen girls. Our Raji Sohal is back with us this morning for a local lens on that story. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, just recently, this uh, piece of investigative journalism at the Wall Street Journal revealed that Instagram has been conducting their own research on users, looking deep into the demographics, and they found unequivocally that it's an unrealistic portrait of people's lives. Yes, we all knew this, um, but that they are extremely aware that their products have harmful effects on users, and get this, that they had no plans to do anything to fix it. They even um, have been trying to get an Instagram going for people under 13, because why not hook the next generation while they're young? Unbelievable. <laughs> I found this, Unbelievable. Yeah. I found this series so depressing to read because, I mean, it wasn't totally, the findings weren't totally surprising to me. I'm talking today about the effects on teen girls because that's what came out of the investigative journalism. But hey, I'm on Instagram and I am not immune to how these things work. I mean, uh, just even the sheer amount of addictiveness that these, the addictive quality that these platforms have, you find yourself like scrolling, starting to scroll and whatever, 26 minutes later, in some cases for some people, it's <laughs> two hours, three hours, yeah. four hours later, they're still in there. And I used to use Instagram just for like recipes. I thought it was great for that. Also for hunting down local stories. And then soon I found myself looking at people's vacation pictures. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life here? So I talked to some local teens. Um, and you know, the consensus was really that what came out of this investigative journalism about 
um, Facebook, which owns Instagram, and and how damning uh, how dangerous their images, uh, their filters, and that kind of thing are for teen girls was just uh, everyone agreed with the findings. I talked to Suze and her daughter. Suze is a local photographer and she works in a high school. So she knows a lot about teen issues. I talked to her and her daughter, Keely, who's 14. And uh, Suze told me that uh, the way that kids are using it is different than adults. She doesn't post a lot. It's kind of a trend with young kids now. They don't post a lot of pictures. Like I think you have three pictures. She has three pictures up. And a lot of her friends, they have nothing up. I think they're just on it. You can ask her, I don't know, to scroll. But I just told her to be wary of the message requests she gets. So Keely and I have quite a good relationship where she will come to me and she'll say, oh, this weird guy sent me a message and she'll just block him. Okay, Sammy. So they're not using it necessarily to share their lives with their friends, but they're using it to consume, to consume other people's lives. And I just thought, hmm, is that any better? I mean, that to me might even be more harmful. They're just sitting there scrolling and taking in other people's uh, fake realities, right? Because the problem is that Instagram has been shown to uh, lead to depression, to self-harm among teens. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that the investigative journalism found that some people are led to suicide, to contemplating suicide because of the inundation of these images that they're not, I mean, they're not real, but people, you see enough of them and you can't help to start to think that that's real. So Facebook, uh, internally, they had uh, data science, they had marketing, product development, computer science, psychology, they looked at all these aspects together. And they had this like these rich findings to show us the problems um, and how the insidious they are and how dangerous it is for young people. And yet they didn't release these findings to researchers to the public, to journalists, it, it, you know, required some, some leaks and whatnot, uh, behind the scenes to, to get this information out to people, which is just so unfortunate because consumers deserve to make informed decisions, right? That is so true. What I found key though, what we just heard there was that there's obviously discussion, like at least they're talking about it, about what they see on there. I think for so often, not enough of us do that with our kids. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, these filters that I mentioned, Instagram says that, oh, hey, they're just for entertainment. But they're not all these like cute, entertaining filters with like, you know, adding animal ears to your face and whatnot. They are ones that change your face, get rid of uh, pores on your skin or change the lighting completely to make you look lighter skinned, things like that. Here's 14 year old Keely on it. Sometimes you don't even realize there's a filter on and uh, it it'll make you feel insecure, but like, I won't like totally Photoshop my photos, but like, I don't alter my body or my face in any way. Like I'll add like lighting fixtures, but I think the problem with filters is sometimes they're so uh, unnoticeable that you don't like notice that there's a filter there. And you think that everyone, you know, is looking perfect all the time when they wake up, when they go to bed kind of things. Now, Raji, just to jump in here on that, that's she's a 14-year-old girl, but she's already talking about the use of filters in her pictures and what looks good. Yeah, Simi, that really right? struck me. Yeah. And in in talking to teen girls, I asked all of them the question of how do you feel after you've been scrolling? So you're done with Instagram, you're about to put it down. Do you feel better or worse? 
And she said uh, worse. She always feels worse. But because of just that pressure that they feel to be in the loop of what everyone else is consuming keeps them going back. Here's Keely again. As a young girl, it definitely feels like a lot of pressure. You know, you feel like if you don't look a certain way, people won't, you know, value you the same or listen to you the same, won't respect you. It's really difficult, especially growing up with social media and kind of like having it all like almost brainwash you because like, you know, been on YouTube or whatever since I was like, like four watching music videos or it's kind of inserted in there everywhere you look. All right, these are digital natives. They have had yeah. this their entire life. It's hard for us to, I think, understand that if we haven't had it our whole lives. Absolutely, Simi. You really, you really hit it there that they, their wiring is like deep for this, right? So it's a hard thing to just shake to be like, oh, I don't want to be on social media anymore. I'm done with this. I mean, they, they grew up with it. So what's the solution? Like, should parents have to police? I think that parents can't necessarily prepare their kids for everything that's out there. Keely kind of agrees. About the whole like self-esteem thing, there's no really way to like, you know, obviously saying, yeah, this is not all real, you know, lots of things are Photoshop, but there's no way to really like prepare them for what's like about to, you're about to witness because you don't know how insecure you can get until, you know, you see all these perfect girls and you don't look in the mirror and you don't see the same thing kind of thing. That's frustrating for parents though, Raji, because we, we always want to try to help, right? We always want to try to fix things. And she's saying that kids have to learn this on their own. Yeah. And also I think that parents, one thing they can do is put more pressure on uh, bodies that can change this, right? Like, for example, my kids just started at kindergarten and I was surprised to learn that the school expects you to stay in touch via social media on Facebook. I don't want to be, yeah, yeah, I don't want to put my kid on Facebook. Uh, There's absolutely no reason that a school system should be messing with such a problematic media platform who has one goal. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg can tell you as much as he wants uh, that that social media is just connecting people. Well, we know um, that it's all about profits. It's all about profits. And Facebook wants every ounce of your privacy um, for profit. And when Instagram added the shop shopping feature to it, it became that much more obvious uh, because, you know, you could search for something that you might have, um, you know, a genuine curiosity about, hey, maybe it's a laundry detergent and you search for it in Instagram, suddenly all your ads and your exactly. algorithm is full of all the laundry detergents, you know, yeah. um, and it just, it works so insidiously in that way. Yeah, it sure does. Thanks for that story, Raji. Appreciate it. Thanks, Amy. That's our contributor, Raji Sohal, talking about the outsized influence of Instagram on teen girls. This is Mornings with Simi. Some big developments expected in the Meng Wanzhou case today. One o'clock is the expected time that she will appear via video link in court. Now, she is expected to make two court appearances today, one in the United States and one in Canada. That is what Global News has learned at this point. Both of these court appearances are expected 
to relate to this these reports of a possible deal between the United States and Meng Wanzhou. That is what Reuters initially reported this morning. Lots of news outlets, including Global News, working to get more information on that and confirm that, yes, she is expected to make these court appearances today. That would pave the way, potentially, for Meng Wanzhou to be released and she could head back to China. So many implications of this for us here. Most importantly, what then happens to the two Michaels? Now, let's talk more about this case. Joining us this morning is Terry Glavin, columnist with the National Post and McLean's. Terry, thanks for being with us. Hi, Simi. What did you think when you heard this this morning? Does this surprise you at all that this is, sounds like it's been in the works? Well, <laughs> uh I hate to sound like a know-it-all. I mean, I, who knows, right? Uh, one, the first thought that occurred to me was, well, that wasn't so difficult, was it? <laughs> I mean, this has been on the table from the very beginning. And the curious thing is that um, this is how the Americans do business. These, it's, it's kind of like a deferred prosecution agreement, ironically, um, uh, which was, of course, the... You know the the this the, the scandal that erupted when the Trudeau government was trying to put pressure on Jody Wilson Raybould to cut a deal with with uh, SNC Lavalin. But the Americans have been pursuing uh, wire fraud, conspiracy, bank fraud, sanctions evasions, investigations like this for a long, long time. Money laundering against some of the biggest. Banks in Europe, uh, you know, major banks and and, and uh, telecommunications corporations in the United States for for quite some time, and, and it's quite lucrative actually. I don't think any I don't think any money's changing hands here, um, but uh, I, you know, one of the things that I think we should be careful not to you know it's a blind alley that we should be careful not to go down. Uh, I think people will be saying, okay, can we have the Michaels back now? And why why haven't the Americans put the Michaels as part of the deal? I don't know how. I've never understood how the Americans could quite do that. The Ameri- like the United States, like Canada, like Britain, um, there is a separation here of powers in a de- democratic government. There's the judicial and legislative and executive branch. There's a lot of constitutional law in the United States that would actually prohibit the president from simply phoning up, uh, you know, the head of the Justice Department in the in, in New York and saying, OK, could you do something for us here about the, the right. investigation on Meng Wanzhou? So I think, yeah, I mean, that would her removal from Canada for at least a time. And by the way, she'll probably be back. I mean, Meng Wanzhou's been a you know, she was a permanent Canadian resident, I think, 20 years ago. You know, she's been kind of a you know, major socialite in the small and cosseted community of Communist Party bazillionaires <laughs> in Shaughnessy for a long, long time. Um, uh, and, and she's had a really nice life here, you know. I mean, nothing's particularly changed. And, uh, you know, she's kind of the Britney Spears of that community. She's a celebrity. So... Yeah, I, I think, yeah, well, that wasn't hard, was it? Well, what will you be watching for then this afternoon? If she's, she's expected to make two court appearances virtually, one in Canada, one in the United States, but what, what are you right. listening for? Um, well, I, I, the, the, the thing that I've always 
thought uh, is that you know everybody's shouting at the, the at the Trudeau government and then screaming at them and saying you've got to do something about this tear up the extradition treaty. You know we've got to let Meng Wanzhou go. Um, she's been able to leave from the very beginning. Nobody's keeping her here. She could just you know tell her security detail to fire up the Mercedes or whatever she's being driven around in, drive to the Peace Arch and say goodbye to us. Like go please. Um, so I think what will probably happen is that the, uh, the, the Justice, Justice Department of the Eastern District of New York will appear, will appear on a Zoom call in front of a judge and say we're uh, withdrawing the, the extradition request based on an agreement that we have negotiated with Meng Wanzhou's lawyers. And so, therefore, the proceedings against her in the Supreme Court before Justice Heather Holmes is unnecessary. Hmm. And so all the paperwork gets done, and then uh, there's a brief hearing in front of uh, Justice Heather Holmes, and she says that, well, all of the probation orders and all of the rules and, and uh, you know, the <laughs> strictures around the mansion in, uh, in Shaughnessy are lifted, and then that's it. That's it. Right. So, but as you point out, yeah, as you point out, though, obviously the Americans couldn't put the two Michaels on the table, but does that pave the way for Canada to say, all right, time now for us to talk about this? Well, it might, it might help to, I mean, you know, the waters have been muddied, uh, you know, on this whole issue from the very beginning. And I mean, uh, you know, if people are uh, astonished that, that Beijing thought it could get away with, uh, with you know, picking up uh, the two mics off the streets and throwing up, throwing them up against the wall and slapping them around a little bit and ch- chucking them in jail and holding them there until, until you know, we 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 somehow strong arm the Americans into withdrawing an extradition warrant or some damn thing. It's because there's a lot of people in the. How shall we say, uh, how can I put this delicately, the pro-Beijing business lobby in Canada, who have been giving the Chinese uh, government every reason to believe that this is possible and this could be done from the very word go. You had Jean Chrétien, uh, you know, phoning up, made, I think, five phone calls to the prime minister's office within the first three days saying, you know, please, this could interfere with business. I can intervene. Send me to China. They like, they like me. Oh my I goodness. mean, it's been absolutely comical. So, yeah, I mean, I really hope that uh, somehow the penny's going to drop in Beijing and they're going to realize that, the, you know, Canada's a democracy. 87% of the Canadian people already think we're total creeps. We're not making it any easier for our friends in Canada by doing this. How about we just get rid of these guys, let, let these guys go, let them come back to Canada? I think that, that you know, it's uh, one hopes, one lives in hope. Yeah, Terry, do you think that uh, on China's part, did they miscalculate this? Did they think that their friends in Canada could pressure the government to make this happen? I think they were given every reason to believe that that was so. And as a matter of fact, it was pretty touch and go there for a while. I mean, you had, uh, you know, we, not to be mean to my colleague, colleagues in the media to bring too much appropriate opprobrium down upon us, but I think we, we, the media did tend to give the Canadian public the impression that this could be done. 
there was certainly a thinking around the prime minister's office that this was a, you know, the kind of thing that you could do. That was why, that was why Jody Wilson-Raybould was pressured. That's why she essentially left the government in disgust. Um, because, you know, there was this idea that you could take the American model of a deferred prosecution agreement, you could write it into Canadian law, and if SNC-Lavalin and that network of uh, friends <laughs> that the, the Liberal Party has in and around uh, Montreal got into a jackpot of any kind, you could just right. say, well, you know, you can buy your way out of it. And but it, it didn't just, happen. Uh, it didn't happen. And, of course, you have people like John Manley, who was, among, you know, in this circle of people around Chrétien and Eddie uh, Goldenberg and others who were saying, you know, God, we can't upset the Chinese. We have to do this. Uh, you had, and John Manley, you know, trotted out as this sort of elder statesman when, in fact, he's also on the TELUS board. And he's got, I don't know how, much, how many millions of dollars bound up in his Huawei, TELUS's Huawei investment. Uh, saying, you know, but we should have exercised some creative in- incompetence, and uh, it's all Jody Wilson-Raybould's fault that we didn't. Interesting. What a country. <laughs> you summed it up there, Terry. What a country. Listen, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. Sure. Waiting to see what happens. That's Terry Glavin, columnist with the National Post and McLean's, uh, talking about the Meng Wanzhou situation. Two court appearances today, one o'clock approximately our time, one in the United States, one in Canada. Of course, she'll be appearing virtually. Could this be the end of the line for this two-year-old saga? More to come on that today. Keep it tuned in right here for the latest.